Mm -hmm. Mom, do you mind if I wait till she? Okay. I mean, are uh, you know what? I can start, and she can come in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for being here. Those who are here in the room at Dartmouth Hitchcock, and those who are watching us from afar. Um, I'm Deb Hastings. I direct continuing nursing education here at Dartmouth Hitchcock, and. Um, Again, I welcome you, those who are here and those who are viewing us uh, online. I do have some accreditation announcements that probably most of you are very familiar with. Mm -hmm. After this program, um, we will receive an email from the Center for Learning and Professional Development. That's the old CCEHS, so just be aware that it's now CLPD. Um, you will receive a link to an online evaluation, and we really appreciate your completing the evaluation. Um, and um, sending, sending it in to us because your feedback does help us in part plan future programming. Um, if you're here on site, please be sure you sign in over uh, at the, in the sign-in sheet over on the table. And you must be here for 80% of the program in order to receive the credit. For folks who are viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, please email Judy Langhands. That's judith.m as in may dot langhands, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S at hitchcock.org. She will share your questions or comments with the speaker um, and you can receive feedback that way. Also, if you're watching us online, you need to contact Judy within an hour of the completion of this program uh, telling her that you did participate, that you, uh, she needs your name, degree, and zip code, um, and then she will send you an evaluation as well. Um, we want you to know that none of our uh, planning committee members nor our speaker have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity, um, and no one refused to disclose. So um, I'm really happy to introduce our speaker to you. Most of you know her, Peggy Plunkett. She's been with us for over 30 years and has, I didn't say the exact amount. Do you like how I did that? Um, and <laughs> she has provided care as a CNS in her consultation liaison psych psychiatry role here at Dartmouth Hitch Hitchcock. She's been actively involved for many years uh, on our ethics committee and has provided numerous presentations and publications on, on topics related to clinical bioethics as well as many additional um, and related topics. So at Dartmouth Hitchcock, Peggy's really the go-to person when nurses have questions or need guidance or support regarding ethical issues that arise, and they do on a regular basis uh, when caring for our patient population and, as you all know, the many challenges that can occur. So we're lucky to have Peggy here with us today to share her expertise. She's going to update us on the changes with the Code of Ethics for Nurses, and um, I think that will be of interest to many of us um, particularly it, it's related to the, our practice no matter where we work. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Peggy. Thank you, Deb. Yes, yeah, so I'm really going to be highlighting our current code of ethics. And uh, for those of you who may or may not know, it was just um, revised and updated in 2015. The last time was 2010 when I was involved in that update. So. So these are the objectives. Again, I'm going to go over um, our current code of ethics, talk about the nine provision statements, and give some case examples. So this is a copy, uh, a picture of a copy of the current 2015 version. And also, uh, 2015 is the year of ethics for the American Nurses Association. So each year for Nurse Week, they come up with a theme, and this year it has been ethics. So the ANA has been particularly interested in highlighting the code of ethics this year. So again, we learn from history. So for those of you who remember the old hospital, um, as somebody said, is that you in the cap? <laughs> no, that's not me in the cap. Um, I never actually wore a cap. But um, anyway, this is one of the wards. There was Ward A and Ward B, and this was one of the wards uh, at Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital in Hanover, New Hampshire. So the history of the code uh, basically harks back to the 1800s. In the late 1800s, uh, so Lystra Gretter used a 
pledge, this came up with this Nightingale Pledge that was used in many capping and graduation ceremonies. And it was informally known as the first nursing code of ethics. And this is what the code was back then. So you can see it has a lot of uh, elements that are in the current code and certainly elements that sound very familiar to those of us who work in healthcare in any fashion. So um, it certainly talks about confidentiality. It talks about um, abstaining from anything that could cause harm. So these are very similar concepts that we hold close to our hearts today. And then the timeline after that, really, there was a lot of efforts since then to try and come up with a code of nursing ethics. And the first official code was in 1950. And then it's been amended and revised multiple times. The most recent significant amendment was done in 2001 when there was major revisions to the provision statements as well as the interpretive statements. And then today, so that was the 2001 uh, book, and today it's now 2015. It just came out in January. I'll tell you the nine provision statements are minor revisions, mostly in language, to try and update them, but they have the same similar nine provision statements that we had from the 2001 version. And then the interpretive statements that really explicate it more for how it's really, you know, lived and breathed version on a day-to-day -day basis have been updated and made more current. So the purpose is basically, it's our ethical values, obligations, duties, and ideals. It's our non-negotiable ethical standard, so we really don't have an option to say yes or no to it. Everybody is held to this standard, uh, regardless of whether you're an ANA member or not. This is our ethical standard for all of us, and it's really our commitment to society. So those are the three purposes of the Code of Ethics, and that has not changed since the uh, 2001 version. So the components, the first three provisions are really about the fundamental values and commitments of the nurse. The next three provisions are the boundaries of our duty and loyalty. And finally, the last three are sort of aspects beyond our individual patient encounters. And I'm going to go over each of the individual provision statements. So the first three, which is this fundamental values and commitments of the nurse, is really what I call kind of the bedside, clinical, day-to-day, -day patient care ethics. And these will be very familiar to you. So the first one is talking about compassion and respect for the inherent dignity, worth, and unique attributes of each person. That's provision statement number one. And then along with each of the provision statements, there are interpretive statements. And these have changed slightly, as I said, to kind of update it to current practice. So these are the interpretive statements related to human dignity, our relationships with patients, the right to self-determination. So the first case that I'd like to uh, talk about is this one that really is around these interpretive statements of human dignity and relationships to patients in nature of health. So this is Mr. Brown, our 45-year-old man who's been admitted several times for alcohol-related problems. He's admitted again and is going through alcohol withdrawal. He's irritable, anxious, and demanding. Several of the nurses state that they do not want to take care of him anymore. Does this sound familiar to those of you on acute medical floors? I'm looking at Mary Catherine. So how does the code, the code guide these nurses? So what do people think? Any ideas? Silence speaks volume. <laughs> so basically, I don't have an answer here. I'm waiting for people to speak. Yep. Well, so um, Mr. Brown obviously has a, a problem with addiction, and he's, you know, we need to have compassion for him because he's in a very difficult situation. And um, I've, I've personally read the big book, and I think everybody should. Mm -hmm. And it says in there that, you know, it explains why it's so hard for people to stop drinking. And it's for people that have been drinking, the longer they drink, the harder it is. And um, I think that people that have that problem deserve to be treated with dignity, even though they are probably pretty difficult to deal with. That's a very good point. So to summarize, I'm hoping people can all hear that because that was a great explication of our um, ideals 
and our obligations to care for people such as Mr. Brown um, and understanding the underlying uh, disease of addiction and what that means. So I think even if we didn't have a code of ethics, we would all appreciate that we need to treat people with compassion. We need to understand their health problems and how they affect their behavior. And we need to have respect for them, um, regardless of any kind of health patterns that they may be displaying. So you're absolutely right. So that's perfect. So this first one is really sort of our um, underlying premise, really, for all of our nursing actions. The right to self-determination is another um, interpretive statement for this first provision statement. So that's the same thing as autonomy. Any ideas or examples of how patients display self-determination or autonomy? Yep. Well, in determining whether they want to be a full code or not a full code mm -hmm. is exercising their autonomous right. Right. So choices for care, um, informed consent, um, whether they want to be a full code, whether they want to be a DNR, absolutely. And one of the ways that people can make those comments for the future is to complete advanced directives. So as we know, these are formal written instructions about what we want uh, if we lack capacity to make our own decisions. And for those of you who have completed them, you'll realize, and for those of you who have had patients who have enacted these, you'll realize that the, in many ways the more useful part of that is the durable power of attorney for healthcare, which designates somebody that you want to speak for you if you're not able to speak for yourself. Because the living will part, although it's helpful to get information about what people are thinking about what they want, the language is the language of the legislature. So it's language of lay people and often doesn't help to guide us in those day-to-day -day important decisions. But those are important and we really urge everybody to have advanced directives, um, including all of our staff. So this was an example, but I think the example of any informed consent is a great one. And I wanted to highlight that there's been a lot of efforts here to look at increasing our proportion of patients and staff that have advanced directives. So um, this is a picture of uh, Terry DeRocher, who's a nurse with Maria Kohler, who's um, a social worker, and they've been working on increasing the completion rate of advanced directives throughout our institution and throughout uh, DH and uh, community group practices as well. So, just to remind us, if there is no written advanced care document or uh, a legal guardian, who makes decisions for our patients? So if we have a patient who lacks capacity and they don't have one of these, they don't have a legal guardian or an advanced directive, who makes decisions? So Mary Catherine's looking questionable, well, and I can imagine I why. I was going to say, with the New Hampshire law, the new law, it goes through the family. The law specifies what the hierarchy of who the could order. be the yeah. exactly. uh, person. Absolutely. So Mary Catherine is saying with the new law, so prior to January 1st of this year, I would have told you there was no statute, there was no next of kin statute in either Vermont or New Hampshire to guide this. But as of January 1st, New Hampshire has joined the other uh, 44 states in the country that have a quote-unquote next-of-kin law and has a hierarchical um, surrogate law for people who do not have advanced directives. And this is the hierarchy. So um, we're hoping, and Maria, who I work with all the time, Maria Cole, the social worker who's been involved in this effort, has said that this has sometimes uh, pushed people to actually enact a durable power of attorney for healthcare and advanced directive document, because this may not be the hierarchy that you want, but this is the hierarchy that's in the law. So if you don't have an advanced directive or a legal guardian, and I would imagine no one in this room has a legal guardian, but if you don't have an advanced directive document, this is the hierarchy that in New Hampshire we are legally authorized and required to use. So telling, Verbally telling people what you want uh, does not supplant this um, new law. So the law holds supreme. It holds supreme for all of our patients, whether they came from Vermont, as long as they are getting care in New Hampshire. So I know the community group practices, so the oncology group practice is up at St. Johnsbury. That's in Vermont, so they're under Vermont law, which does not have a hierarchy. But in New Hampshire, as soon as people cross the border, uh, we are having them follow the New Hampshire law. 
So that's the first provision statement, and it's really the most fundamental, probably for all of us, and the one we sort of are very familiar with. The second one is extremely elemental and important in that our primary commitment is to the patient. And that's defined broadly in terms of it may be an individual, it may be a family, a group, a community, or as we know, we're looking at population health. So that's really the underlying principle that we hold near and dear. And these are the interpretive statements that, again, explicate that provision statement. And I'll go through some of these in more detail. So this one is, I think, about the primacy of the patient's interest and conflict of interest. So you're taking care of Mrs. Smith, who's a 90-year-old woman admitted for acute status changes. She happens to live at home. She's diagnosed with a UTI and has started on antibiotics. All is going well. But the beds are tight, and there's discussion about who could be discharged to allow for new patients to be admitted. How many of us live this on a day-to-day -day basis? Mrs. Smith is medically stable on her antibiotics, so she could be discharged. This is stated by um, the team. However, you know that although her thinking is better than when admitted, she's still forgetful and impulsive, and she lives alone. So what is your obligation to the patient? Make sure that whatever her transition is, she's, she's safe, wherever that might be, and to not make that transition care until the safety and this is where you might have a conflict of interest with the goals of the institution to fill that bed. So nurses are smack dab in the middle of their obligation to the patient, which is our primary commitment, and our obligation to our employer who signs our paycheck. And this has been true ever since nurses have worked for employers. Mm -hmm. So what do you do to ensure her safety? Well, good point. Good point. So. Oftentimes, nurses are great advocates for getting other healthcare professionals involved to make sure that that discharge is safe. So, what other healthcare professionals might you engage to help her have a safe discharge? Social worker, discharge planning. Yeah. And if there still is not a safe plan, I mean, we our obligation is still to the public. We are licensed um, and given that privilege to protect the public. So we have a chain of command. There are other people, you know, within nursing as well as other um, other disciplines, we have to speak up. That's our obligation. We have to raise the alarm. If Thank we really you. believe it's wrong, we have to. Yeah. And that's fresh from the mouth of our chief nursing mm -hmm. executive. So <laughs> we can all feel comfortable with that. But our primacy really is to the patient. And that may put you in the middle, but our primacy role is to that patient. So because of our expressed concern, she's evaluated by an occupational therapist, a social worker, to see if anybody can come and help her at home. The CRC, who's our uh, discharge planning nurses here, although their terms, their titles just changed, um, looks into her insurance to see how much professional help she can get at home. Um, and then maybe other things. So there may be in your setting, you may have some other uh, resources that you can put into play. But this is often where nurses are the advocate because the medical team, how many times has the medical team gone in and said, your medical needs are no longer at the acute care level. You may go home. And then the patient starts packing up their belongings and the nurse runs in and says, whoops, <laughs> uh, their medical needs, you know, they may not need IV antibiotics. They may be able to go home, but she's not really capable of managing at home. So this is, as, as Gay said, this is really our obligation to talk about the nursing care needs. So in our um, teamwork, in our team care, we've been working on projects to have these interdisciplinary team conversations about patients so that the nurse's advocacy can be incorporated on a daily basis into the planning of these patients. So these are some other great examples. Here are now examples of how we've been working on this. Now, professional boundaries is a little different. So in psychiatry, we always talk about professional boundaries, but we don't think about that sometimes in the non-psychiatric settings. And yet, professional boundaries for us are very important. So here's one where uh, you're working as a nurse in the pediatric outpatient clinic. So Jimmy's a pretty cute little 11-year-old boy who comes in many times with his diabetes. He and his grandmother, his mother died when he was five and his father's not involved, have many sessions with the dietitian and the diabetes educator nurse. However, you all struggle to do all the right things to control his diabetes. You find out that he actually lives only a few miles from you. So you start going over to his house to check on him and his diabetes. 
He really likes you, and his grandmother says, you are a guardian angel, like the father he never had. So, do you have any boundary issues here? <laughs> you know, if this was your next door neighbor, and you were the nurse in the clinic, so say this was really, really close to home, somebody you actually knew before they came into the hospital, it gets very complicated in a rural setting where our roles blur all the time. I'm constantly in the grocery store and people come up to me and I have to think, do I know this face because it's a coworker? Do I know this face because it's my neighbor? Do I know this face because it was a former patient? So our, our lives and our roles cross over a lot in the rural setting, but we really need to look at boundary issues. So if that wasn't concerning enough to you, he comes into the clinic and he starts acting out when anyone other than you care for him. So now it's affecting his daily care. The diabetes educator and the dietitian start asking you to explain to Jimmy and his grandmother what they need to know because you clearly have a better rapport with them. So you're getting pulled into, uh, very understandably, to try and help the situation. So one evening you get a phone call from his grandmother saying Jimmy has a blood glucose level of 300 but is refusing to take any of his insulin unless you come over and give it to him. You were just going to attend your baby nephew's christening ceremony, which is very important to you and to your entire family. So, any boundary issues now? <laughs> but could easily happen. Again, if this was your next door neighbor, you know, that gets very tricky. So if you knew this young family before you even were their nurse in the clinic, first you might question, should you have been their nurse in the clinic when you were personal friends with them? It gets very messy, and in psychiatry, it's much more black and white. In the non-psychiatric settings, it's much more gray, but we have to continue to question, query, and get some personal supervision around this or some conversations with other peers about this. It's not simple, and it's particularly not simple in a rural setting where you do know all these people. So the third provision statement under these sort of like clinical bedside um, one through three provision statements is that we promote, advocate for, and protect the rights, health, and safety of the patient. And these are the provision statements that explicate this particular, these are interpretive statements for this provision statement. So you might say, well, you know, I don't know if this really affects me on a day-to-day -day basis, but I'll try and give you some examples to make it much more clear. So the first one is the rights of privacy and confidentiality. And if you remember, that very first 1893, you know, Nightingale Pledge talked about confidentiality right then. So we've continued to be concerned about that ever since. So this case uh, may be interesting because I think we live this all the time, again, in this rural setting. Mr. John Humble is a 37-year-old male who was in a car accident where he had a TBI. His blood alcohol was elevated at the time, and his passenger, his best friend Bill, was killed. You were his nurse. You live in the same small town, and when you go to the country store on your way home, the clerk asks you, so I heard John got into trouble again. I heard that he was driving drunk and someone got killed. Your Facebook page says you work there. What's up? The old Facebook page problem. So, what is your ethical obligation? Well, first off, what's your ethical obligation about your Facebook page? <laughs> Don't put, <laughs> Don't put anything about your patients in your Facebook page. Yeah, as, as much as you'd like to share, you had a difficult night, you had a difficult shift, um, it's really a public newspaper. What about when you live in the same town and the person at the country store asks you about who's in the hospital? Yeah, people are shaking their head no. So when I first came here, as Deb said, that was more than 30 years ago. <laughs> the Valley News used to print a roster of all the patients who were in the hospital and where their hometown was. Ruth probably remembers this. <laughs> I think it even printed why they were in the hospital. So when you go from that to now, when we can't even say whether a person's in the hospital, you can see how far we've come in terms of confidentiality. So it's hard sometimes to remember when you treat your neighbors and you go home and people ask you, but it really is important to keep that privacy. So the next day, you have him as your patient. He continues to be confused with poor short-term memory. At times he remembers that there was an accident, but at other times he forgets and thinks he's in the hospital for appendicitis. So what if the police come to serve him a warrant for DUI and manslaughter? What's your obligation? Still Still to the patient, so what would that mean? Well, I would say because um, he still has short-term memory issues, that they they could not be, see him at that time. 
Right, right. So the concern would be to advocate for the patient and to protect him from um, having a conversation that might not be in his best interest and he might not be able to actually participate in cognitively. Mm -hmm. So anybody here worked on one of the trauma or surgical units? The, yeah. The nurses there advocate all the time for these kind of things where they say, oh, here comes the police, maybe we better evaluate. Or ask the patient. Sometimes even if the patient has capacity, it's up to the patient to say, yes, I'm willing to talk to them or not. So we do run into this. But it is our obligation to advocate. So then we're talking about research. I don't know if anybody works with patients who are on research protocols. But you're now a nurse in the infusion area in the cancer center. Mrs. Injection is a 55-year-old who has been living with breast cancer for many years. In spite of many treatments, her cancer has grown and metastasized, and she's now considered to be terminally ill. She's enrolled in a phase one trial for a new chemotherapy protocol. So what do we know about phase one trials? What kind of, what kind of trials are they? What, what is the purpose of a phase one trial? Anybody know? Well, a phase one trial is the first trial in human subjects, so it's really to look at toxicities. It's not for individual benefit. So she's talking with you, and she says she's part of a new wonderful protocol for one of the newest chemotherapy medications. I'm really hopeful for this. This has the best chance for saving my life, she tells you. So for nurses who work on our cancer floor and in our cancer clinic, they hear these kind of comments from people all the time. It always makes us grimace because we're worried about what they understand. So what do you think of what she tells you? Well, <clears throat> she's in denial. So she's in denial. She may be wishful thinking, whatever you want to call it, but she might not have understood the goal of the research protocol. So what's our ethical obligation? What do you think of her informed consent for that research protocol? We tried to get her mm -hmm. some education on exactly what she's dealing with and what the status of the treatment is. Good point. So try and get her some education about the protocol she's actually on so she understands the real purpose of the protocol. So how many times have you walked out of a room where the physician has done an informed consent conversation, you go back in, and the patient tells you something that is totally different from what the physician told them? It's really nice when you heard the physician telling the patient so that you know it's totally different. But I think a lot of times people say things to nurses that they may not feel comfortable saying to the physician about either their lack of understanding or their misunderstanding about medical information. Mm -hmm. In the, um, so those are really tough decisions about whether to do chemotherapy because it has a quality of life problem. And isn't that what that Center for Shared Decision Making is about? And could you, um, could you like engage them? Or, or does it have to be patient? No, so you, you have a very good question. So in terms of difficult decisions, the Center for Shared Decision Making, which is a wonderful resource for people in making um, care decisions, is right here on site. Um, it's on the third floor, um, easy to access. And they help people to make decisions um, that are difficult. What they can't do is not all the time give the actual information that would be included in the informed consent discussion with the researcher. So they could help the person to identify that they may need more information. So I'm betting if they heard somebody having this conversation about a phase one trial, one of the things they would advocate is for that person to get more information. So they look at the patient's individual values and they also look at the information and support mechanisms to make the decision. But yeah, they're a wonderful resource. Our research nurses are involved all the time in sharing more information and they have, they have the same obligation to ensure that the patient's informed. So I think they do lots of clarifying mm -hmm. all, every day. Right, and I think the regular staff nurses on the inpatient oncology unit do that as well. So this is not an uncommon misunderstanding that patients have. Sometimes they actually understand that they're probably not gonna get benefit, but they're hopeful they're gonna get benefit. That's a little different from saying the only reason I'm doing this protocol is because I am going to get benefit. That's a different comment from, I know they told me I probably won't get benefit, but I'm hoping I will. So clarifying from the patient what their understanding is is the first.
first step, helping them to get the correct information, whether it's from the bedside nurse, from the research nurse, from the researcher, or from shared decision making are great options. Then, in terms of our culture of safety, so we think about that all the time at Hitchcock. So one of the physicians starts using Bondo and self-adhesive shelf liner contact paper on her patients with pressure ulcers. When you ask this physician where she got this idea, she tells you, I'm sick of all that expensive stuff the wound care nurse uses. This is cheap, readily accessible anywhere, and patients really like it. They can get any color they want. So if you're somebody who's thinking about the cost of health care, you know, that's very great. So what's our ethical <coughs> obligation? <laughs> now this seems fairly funny, but we do have clinicians who try and bring in new products all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been an operating room nurse for 30 years, and you wouldn't believe the things that they used to do in the old days. Like Bondo? They, they, well, we had a, a lady with um, that had a non-healing esophageal perforation, and they put super glue on it, which was a big uh, disaster but um, <clears throat> now I think it's a lot different as far as bringing in things like that we can't bring anything in surgeons just walk in with stuff I want to try this and nobody <coughs> stopped them but now they can't do that anymore in our operating room so I think that um, you know I would have to refer that to the wound care nurses and see if they could help you know, because right. I would have some big concerns <laughs> yeah. about yeah. that. So advocacy would be very important here. And it's not that you have to know all the information or be the expert. We have a lot of resources, and we have a clinical and uh, practice chain of command that if we need to, we can use. So we all have supervisors. We can eventually go all the way up to gay if we're seeing this kind of practice. So as nurses, because we do work in a hierarchical structure, we do have a lot of resources to support us when we see practices concerning. Well, can we, and can we ask the physician, is that evidence-based? Do you have um, something that I can read that, you know, because I've never heard of that before? Yes. So starting the conversation with, tell me more about this, is this evidence-based? So it's really all about safety and our, and our professional responsibility about safety. So you're absolutely right. So other nurse resources we talked about might be your own uh, nurse managers. It might be the wound care nurses. It might be the physician to have that conversation. Great point. So um, this interpretive statement is about questionable practice. So uh, you're a preceptor on the orthopedic unit for an experienced orthopedic nurse who relocated to your area. You're happy because she's so friendly and easy to work with. However, after two weeks of working with her, you're pretty frantic. She doesn't seem to know anything about traction. She put the knee continuous passive motion device on upside down on a total knee patient, and she tells the new hip patients that it's okay to sleep without the hip abductor pillow in place. You know the unit is short-staffed, and they're really counting on her coming off orientation and helping to fill scheduling holes. So anybody here been a preceptor? Anybody here been in that situation where the person's about to come off orientation and you're not sure whether they're ready? Yeah, so what's your ethical obligation? Any preceptors want to speak up? Tell the manager or the education nurse. Tell the manager or the education nurse. Off orientation, right? They're not ready to come off orientation. Have a conversation. What's that? Yeah, we have a conversation. Have a conversation, yeah, right? Course. Have a conversation with the nurse, with the people who are responsible for her orientation, right? So the resources you've talked about: the education department, the manager, HR. Depending on where you practice, you may have more or less resources in terms of orientation. So the last straw is when she returns from lunch and now you smell alcohol in her breath and her speech is slurred. So what's your ethical obligation now? Reportable to the management and she needs to be taken. So this is an immediate safety issue and a concern for her. I mean, she's impaired practice affects her as well. So resources again, your leadership, um, human resources, need to know your resources. Eventually it might require a, um, a call to the Board of Nursing and that's important to connect with the Office of Professional Nursing to review that.
to help this nurse to get the care that she needs. So those were the first three kind of clinical bedside provision statements. The next three are about the boundaries of duty and loyalty. And this is kind of our professional ethics as an individual nurse. So it goes beyond the bedside clinical work and more to do with our sort of professional duties for ourselves. So the fourth one is about our authority, accountability, and responsibility for our nursing practice. We can make decisions and take actions consistent with the obligation to promote health and to provide optimal care. So these interpretive statements are related to that provision statement, and they talk about really that we are the authority and we have accountability and responsibility for our actions. And it also covers our ability and our obligation to delegate responsibly. So we're a nurse on a medical unit. You have Mrs. Bertha Oldtimer as one of your patients. She's 88 years old and has severe dementia. She's admitted with exacerbation of her CHF and COPD. She struggles more and more with her breathing and she's finally reaching the need for ventilatory assistance. She's a full code and has no family. You've worked in the ICU in the past and the physician asked you to help set up a new BiPAP system you have never seen before for this patient here on the medical unit. So what's your accountability and responsibility regarding nursing judgment for this patient? You don't know how to do it, you can't set it up, and you can't be responsible for it. So you would get respiratory involved, and somebody would need to stay with that patient and have the patient transferred. So how many times have you been asked to provide care that's one step higher than what you normally have on your unit um, for the good of the patient? So it's really our obligation to make sure that we're accountable, responsible, and we have the authority to provide the care. Her younger sister is 70 years old. She's totally cognitively intact and also has COPD and ends up being stabilized on nighttime use of a BiPAP machine in the ICU. It's 11 o'clock in the evening and she's now considered stable enough to be transferred back to your medical unit. You're working nights. You know how to use her BiPAP machine, so you volunteer to take care of her. It's now time for your meal break. The only nurse available to relieve you is Mary. You were really hungry since you didn't have time to eat dinner before you came on duty. So what's your ethical obligation regarding the delegation of this care to Mary? You can delegate to someone who doesn't have appropriate skill set. So you can't delegate to somebody who doesn't have the appropriate skill set. So it's our obligation. You may personally have the ability to take care of this device, but you need to delegate to somebody who also has the skill set to do that. So it's often tempting to say we have one nurse on the unit who can provide this particular obscure level of care that maybe we don't provide for anybody else, but you have to think about the meal, the meal um, coverage, you have to think about when you go off to the bathroom, you have to think about all of the handoffs. You don't work alone. So provision statement five is we owe the same duties to ourselves as to others, including the responsibility to promote health and safety, preserve wholeness of character and integrity, maintain competence, and continue personal and professional growth. So a lot of responsibilities to take care of ourselves, which we don't think about all the time. So these are the interpretive statements, and they really explicate more of this issue about taking care of ourselves. So what guides us at DHMC related to our wholeness of character and preservation of integrity? We have any statements, any policies? We have a code of ethics. We have a code of ethics. Nurse Practice Act. Nurse Practice Act. Yep. So we have a code of ethical conduct here at DHMC, which we are, I believe, perhaps obligated to sign on an annual basis and hopefully read. But this really is very similar, if you look at it, to the components of our professions ethical code and also our practice act. So this relates to any employee here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but it isn't that different um, from our code of ethics for nurses and our practice act. And then these are some other things to think about in terms of preserving our wholeness of character and pre preservation of integrity. So again, we have the same obligations to ourselves as we have to our patients. So um, disruptive behavior of employees or patients and families is something that we can be protected from. So we need to know when that is crossing the line and actually causing harm to ourselves or our colleagues. 
And then another opportunity is we have Schwartz rounds here, which is an opportunity to discuss these difficult issues of patient care where sometimes we are struggling with how do we give compassionate care in these uh, stressful and difficult uh, times. And then when we think about our competence and continuation of professional growth, um, and certainly with Deb and uh, Judy here, <laughs> I feel like I'm really preaching to the choir, but we really are an institution where we do value lifelong learning. So whether it's our competency and skills program through our nurse education system, or whether it's our continuing education and professional development that we have available to us here. So we have a variety of options for helping us to be really lifelong learners. Provision six is about uh, individual and collective effort to establish, maintain, and improve our ethical environment. And these interpretive statements are really related to making sure that our environment and moral virtue is intact, that our environment and ethical obligation is intact, and that we have a responsibility for that healthcare environment, regardless of your nursing role. So this is a nice broadening of the uh, code of ethics from the clinical at the bedside to the managers, to nurse educators, to nurse researchers, in whatever um, role you might work. So one thing that we do have here is we do have a clinical ethics committee. I am on that ethics committee, as Deb said, and any member of the healthcare team um, may request an ethics consult. So it can be informal. We often get people calling up and say, I don't even know if this should be an ethics consult, but let me tell you about the situation. And Whoever is on call for ethics that day is happy to have that conversation. A lot of nurses call me because they know me and I'm kind of the safe nurse on the ethics committee to have that conversation. So we do want to encourage people that um, anybody can ask for an ethics consult. And then the ethics committee uh, is responsible for several related policies and procedures and we have input into many other clinical policies and procedures uh, for their ethical inputs. So we do have an underpinning from a policy standpoint as well. And finally, when we think about responsibility for the healthcare environment, we have a lot of activities and institutions here at DHMC, including our shared governance structure, which really helps to ensure that our healthcare environment is safe and has quality healthcare. So that was the, the, the middle three, I think about them, uh, provision statements which are about our sort of individual duties to ourselves. And then the final ones are really those ones that extend beyond the individual patient encounters. Um, and these are really about us as part of the profession of nursing. So it's, it's greater than ourselves as individuals, than ourselves even as collective employees here, and it really goes into ourselves as part of a profession of nursing. So the seventh one is that we advance the profession through research and scholarly inquiry, professional standards development, and the generation of both nursing and health policy. So these are the interpretive statements that talk about that provision statement. So we are expected to contribute through research and scholarly inquiry and to be involved in professional practice standards development and implementation and health policy. So how do we meet that? Any examples? Well, Gay mentioned earlier, we do have uh, research nurses here who help work on um, other people's research. We do have nurse researchers here who are um, the investigators who are in charge of the research. We certainly do quality improvement studies all the time and evidence-based practice reviews. Anything else that come to mind? Mm -hmm. In the OR, we have a practice committee, a council, that's part of our shared governance, and um, they're always, um, we, all, we have a lot of questions about evidence-based practice, and, and so that's our go-to. Perfect. Perfect. So, here's an example that just happened in March where we had the safety fair, and there were many um, quality improvements and evidence-based practice projects that were uh, showcase there, many nurses involved in that. Professional practice standards, um, we are obligated to know our professional practice standards. Uh, recently the psychiatric professional st standards just got updated and I was involved in that as I've been involved in the last couple of editions. There have been other professional practice standards. Um, Mary Catherine, I think, are you involved or I know uh, Lori Pavoda? 
He's been well, involved in the Lori's generic ones. Doing ANA, I'm doing New Hampshire Nurses Association and the American Nursing Professional Development. Right, right. So many people here have been involved in developing professional practice standards, and we're all obligated to know what our professional practice standards are. So um, if you haven't already looked them up, uh, the ANA has many of them. They uh, are often the central repository for many of the professional practice standards, and some of the uh, professional societies actually coin these as well. So this one in particular was done as a um, combination of an effort from the American Nurses Association, the American Psychiatric Nurses Association, and the International Society of Psychiatric Nurses. So it was a composite of all of the um, professional groups related to psychiatric nursing standards. Then, as Mary Catherine was talking about, we have people who've been involved uh, at the state level with the New Hampshire Nurses Association and some of our members. So our very own Deb Hastings is a member of our Commission of Continuing Education. And um, Jamie Payson is on the Nursing Practice Commission. <coughs> so it's important to be involved. It's a great way to contribute back to the profession. Number eight is that we collaborate with other health professionals and the public to protect human rights, promote human health diplomacy, and reduce health disparities. So that sounds pretty highfalutin to many of us. Like, how could I, you know, as the bedside nurse, do that? Um, these are the interpretive statements that relate to that, and it really talks about our um, obligation to promote these kind of things. This is an example here that we have, um, we've been involved in this, so these are our APRNs, so Ellen Flaherty and Justin Montgomery have been involved in this um, program to help keep elders safe at home. And that's been a great program. Um, and I know Justin is involved with some telehealth activities for elder care. So we're working all the time to look at um, creative ways, particularly in the rural setting, to help our population. Any other examples you can think of that would meet this? Mm -hmm. Even participating in flu clinics <coughs> and blood pressure clinics Good point. help to keep people healthy outside of the hospital. Good point. So how many of us get asked, because we're nurses, to help with um, you know, blood drop, um, blood donation clinics, to do blood pressure checks, to do all sorts of safety clinics in the schools when they have health fairs. So it's a great, it's a great opportunity to do a volunteer <coughs> activity. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes when there's uh, issues that involve healthcare and um, the state budget, you have opportunities to go testify. Mm -hmm. They have open sessions, usually when it goes to the Senate. And um, I've done that not for nursing, but for um, um, services for disabled people. But um, it, it's quite challenging, because you have to sit there for hours and hours right. before they call on you. But um, it is a way, it, it is taken notice of. Mm -hmm. Right, and there's a very, very I'm glad you're doing that. Are you in Vermont or New Hampshire? New Hampshire. Great. So through the New Hampshire Nurses Association, their Commission on Government Affairs does a lot of lobbying related to health care and um, patient care and nursing related bills. So there are opportunities to partner with the New Hampshire Nurses Association as well on that. That's great. And even if you think about it with our citizen legislature in New Hampshire, um, you know, they will tell, so there's what, however many are there are, over 400 um, representatives. So we really are represented by a lot of people that we can influence. And they will tell you that if they get three phone calls, that's like an avalanche of information, <laughs> and they really pay attention. So, um, you know, if you call on bills that you're passionate about or that you have any knowledge or experience with, they will listen to you. And they get back to you, too. I mean, yes, they will get back to you. So we have a lot of ways to influence policy in New Hampshire. So provision nine is about our um, obligation to articulate our nursing values, to maintain the integrity of the profession, and integrate the principles of social justice into nursing and health policy. So again, this is the larger sort of uh, obligation for the whole profession of nursing. And the interpretive statements is really looking at that social justice in both nursing and health policy. So again, by being involved in our professional organizations, 
Um, it's a way to uh, talk about our uh, articulation and assertion of values. So if you're not involved in your professional organizations, obviously the ANA and the New Hampshire Nurses Association or Vermont State Nurses Association are the basic fundamental nurses association that protects the public and protects the nurses profession. And then there are all the specialty organizations as well. And these are, uh, you mentioned the bills that you've um, talked about down in Concord. These are the bills this year in New Hampshire Nurses Association that they saw as their key bills that they were going to lobby on. So this is, if you look up on their webpage, you can always find out in the legislative session which ones they've chosen. And in January, the New Hampshire Nurses Association has held town meetings uh, across the state, which we have typically had on site here, that we can talk about what bills we might want to uh, be involved in that have health consequences or nursing consequences or direct <coughs> patient care consequences. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those <coughs> bills are, are difficult to understand. Is there um, somewhere you can go to uh, get clarification on how that's going to impact, especially like, you know, like the, the hospital? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of budgetary things that have impacted through the hospital, and they're really hard to understand. Right, right. So the question is about how do you understand the bills when they're coming up to see, because sometimes you read something and you don't have the history um, and the understanding of how it's going to affect either you or your neighbor or your children or your job. So um, what do people think about in terms of resources? I would say depending on the issue, I mean, for nursing, NHNA is a, is a wonderful resource. Mm -hmm. um, one of the left, your local rep is a wonderful resource. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes your sometimes. representative <laughs> may know, sometimes you may know more than they do. That's right. Um, we have a lobbyist here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, obviously, they're very busy, but if it's something that is very important to nursing and to patient care, um, I'm betting they know about the activities as well, so they're a good resource as well. But New Hampshire Nurses Association has um, information on their webpage as the session continues about the, particularly the bills that they're actively involved with, and any member of the Commission of, um, on Government Affairs for New Hampshire Nurses Association, and I'm imagining Vermont has a similar um, structure, could be contacted for more information. Because you're right, sometimes the bills are hard to understand because they're written in legalese, they're not written in healthcare information. The thing is too, if it's, a, if it's a situation that you, like in your situation, you probably know more about those bills than perhaps your local rep, and you provide education to that person, so maybe they can change Well, their... our, our area agency <coughs> provides education to mm -hmm. families. That's how we know when these bills right. are coming up and stuff. But it doesn't seem, you know, sometimes you see things in the paper, you know, mm -hmm. and stuff that you wonder if that's slanted and, you know, I just, yeah, just curious. Yeah. yeah. So there is, so the New Hampshire Nurses Association has a lobbyist as well, so those people as well as the Commission on Government Affairs for the State Nurses Association often know a lot about the history and meaning of each bill. We actually had a presentation just a week ago. And the, the executive director of the um, Vermont State Nurses Association is a nurse and actually does lobbying for that agency, which isn't the case in New Hampshire right now. But um, so there's a lot of input, you know, throughout that legislative process. A little bit different in each state, but right. opportunity. But when something affects doctors, you bet you may know all about it, and they're out there. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I think sometimes nurses know just about as much about the legislative process as physicians know. Sometimes, sometimes physicians are involved and sometimes they're not so involved. But yeah, that's a good point. So these are my references. Um, and again, these are my objectives. Any last questions or examples that we didn't already talk about? Anything from people who have been calling in from outside? We have five minutes for discussion. We have five minutes for discussion. Does this, does this sound familiar? Were any of you aware of the Code of Ethics from before? Many people are not, so I'm always happy to remind them that we do have a Code of Ethics for nurses uh, that does is our, um, you know, is our non-negotiable standard. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, how did you get on the ethics committee? So how did I get on the ethics committee? So I uh, was a nudge, <laughs> and I kept saying I'm interested in ethics, and I kept saying I'd like to be on the ethics committee. And so um, eventually when there was an opening, they said, now we have an opening and you can get on it. So I just kept asking the chair, the chair, current chair is Dr. Dr. Timothy Leahy. Yep. It had been Dr. Jim Burnett from Neurology, and now it's Dr. Leahy. So he keeps track of all the different disciplines and all the different specialties that are represented. Um, but honestly, I think having somebody from the OR would be wonderful. Yeah, so, that would be great. Well, actually, uh, the reason I'm here is because we had an ethical issue come up mm -hmm. recently. That I didn't, um, I knew there was an ethics committee, so I just looked up online who's on it, and I just emailed Dr. Levy, and he was very, very helpful. Right. But um, I didn't know that you yep. were on it, or I might have yep. emailed you. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not like a clear-cut thing, like, you right. know, I knew there was an ethics committee, and I knew that those were the kind of issues that we could bring. Mm -hmm. But um, it was very informal, and but what he said really helped us right. know, make the decision. Yes, sometimes our consults are informal over the phone, and we don't even mention the specific patient's name. And sometimes they're extremely formal with a full multidisciplinary meeting, including the patient and family, and a note in the chart. So it, it runs the gamut. Um, every day from Monday through Friday during the daytime hours there is somebody from the committee who's on call to do the ethics consults for that day and you can actually find it in the, um, in the EDH um, web links of resources where it talks about the on-call schedules so we ethics committee is listed on there just like all the on-call schedules and ultimately Dr. Leahy is the backup for times when somebody else is well, he's actually coming in September to the OR to talk to the staff about the committee guy. Great. I might have approached you if I had known. <laughs> I'm happy to come as well. Okay. So, any last comments or questions? Yeah. Okay. Now, just a comment, and I, I'd love for anybody's thoughts about this. You know, as professional nurses, we have to practice under our standards and under our code of ethics. Mm -hmm which means we have to know what our standards are and our code of ethics. And, um, and I'm just curious if anyone has thoughts of how do we really get this information? This was fabulous, by the way, thank you. Um, but how do we get this out in the hands of all nurses who really need to know this um, and, and can't be practicing blindly? Um, I just love any thoughts. question how do you get information out to people about their fundamental obligations to know this information well and, and do people really even understand mm -hmm. you know if, if they never learned in school that you really have to practice under your your standards and your your code of ethics if you don't really even know that then you wouldn't even be motivated to find out well, and even people don't understand what's in their state practice act so if you've moved from one state to another and you haven't actually looked at the State Practice Act, you might be surprised at how it does vary slightly from state to state on what it um, obligates you to do and what it allows you to do. Well, which, you know, sometimes I'm tempted to, do we need to get a copy of the, the Practice Act and the Code of Ethics in the hands of every nurse and every shared governance council should have a copy of their standards? And, mm -hmm. you know, what do we need to do that would help support that? Do you think in, like, well, in the OR, we have AORN standards, and we have access to them at all times, and we all know where they are. That's great. Um, but, you know, like some, some areas of nursing get very specialized like that, and, you know, that's, um, you know, you don't always pay attention to, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the Internet about shared governance and stuff that are, that are there that are really good resources, but people don't know. Right. And I'm not sure how you get all that mm -hmm. information out there. But, um, I mean, like, I can take it back to the OR and to the practice committee. And, you know, we can post it, you know. But people get sign fatigue. You know? mm -hmm. Well, I mean, does every nurse need a handbook with at least a few really important things or knowing how I you access those things? Or, I, I, don't, I don't know. Then the standards are being rolled out, you know, attaching that with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the yearly appraisals kind of at least once a year mm -hmm. is a reminder. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. In, in the conversation with your manager, mm -hmm. or at staff meetings, or I mean, I know staff meetings are packed with information. And there, they, there's lots of information and lots of changes. When, when it comes right down to it, what you legally practice under the standards of, you know, nursing care for your population and your ethics are kind of the big three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be used for sort of an annual attestation that every nurse has to review them once a year. Um, I mean, it doesn't. It's not a huge document. It's something they could do, and at least it would remind them every, oh yeah, mm -hmm. and allow let people know that they exist. Mm -hmm. I know when the standards get revised, that's a nice time to bring them back to the units, so like when the ARN standards mm -hmm. get revised, and the general nursing ones. Mm -hmm. I know when the psychiatric nursing ones got revised um, that I was involved with, I, I went to the psych unit and had a variety of meetings with the nurses about those changes. So I think that's an opportunity to do that, because they do get revised periodically. Well, you know, like in the new policy thing, you can mark it as review. Mm -hmm. Is it something you can just put on the internet that way? That you can just require that people go and review it and that there's a, could that be done electronically? I'm sure it's the way it could mm -hmm. be done. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that would probably be good because that, that would be a yearly reminder mm -hmm. that. There's also e-learning for that. Yes, right. yeah. Yeah, you get e-learning too, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It's true. We can continue to talk. We are officially right. out of time for those who are watching from afar. So, so I want to thank you. you. This was fabulous thank information. You. Thank you all Great for job. watching. Thank you. And, um,